Hello and welcome to the Praise Center Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, visit PraiseCenterOnline.com. I guess I'll start with uh, just saying a little bit about me. Uh, my name is Brent, for those who don't know me. Um, and I'm not as cool as Pastor Sal, is, is what, I'll, what I'll say about that. Uh, but I do have the, the great privilege of getting to... Um, getting to speak to you today, and I, I really uh, feel excited for what the Holy Spirit has been talking to me about and, uh, and, and giving me to share with you. Um, if you have your Bible and you'd like to follow along, because I'm not that great at preparing um, PowerPoint presentations, so there won't be one. Um, so if you want to follow along in your own Bible, uh, you can get it out. I'm going to be preaching from the book of Galatians. So you can uh, open up to chapter 2, which is where I'm going to start. I'm going to be doing pretty much the whole book, um, just a chunk at a time. So um, just hold your place there in Galatians 2. We're going to be starting in verse 20. Um, let me give you a little bit of context to what the book of Galatians is all about or what it is. Um, it's a letter to the churches in the regions of Galatia, which uh, is written by the Apostle Paul. He's addressing some news that he heard about the Galatians regarding uh, what he said was the acceptance of a gospel different from what Paul originally preached to them. Um, as a brief overview, there are, there are Jews who are God's chosen people uh, through whom Jesus Christ was born, and then there are Gentiles, which is the label to encompass everyone who is not a Jew. Um, Galatia was a region in what we call Turkey today, so they, they were Gentiles as Galatians. Um, the Apostle Paul, at some point during his ministry, he went down through there, he preached the gospel to the Galatians, and then sometime later, some Jews who did believe in Jesus, um, but as Jews, they also had the laws of Moses, they, they, they come in and they say, well, in order to be truly saved, you not only need to believe in Jesus, you also have to follow the Jewish laws. Um, let me pray right, right quick before we begin. Father God, uh, thank you so much that you brought us all here today. Um, I just pray that you would help me, Lord, to speak your word, speak your truth, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work into our hearts and, and really um, inspire us, Lord God, to, to dig into your word, to... Um, to chew on it and to really understand what it means, Lord God. And so we pray that you bless this word, bless our time in Jesus' name, amen. Um, like I said, this letter was sent to address the issue that Paul took with the Jews trying to convince the Galatians that the only way to be a Christian is to believe the gospel and to follow the Old Testament laws. Um, and this isn't the only time that this happened, actually. In Acts chapter 15, verse 1, the Bible says, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So the same thing. You have the Jews um, who believed in Jesus telling the Gentiles who believed in Jesus that they can't be saved unless they follow the Jewish customs in addition to believing in all that Jesus is. So my first point is very straightforward. Salvation can never be earned through religious works or through the rejection of evil. And here's where we'll pick up the text in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. This is Paul speaking. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Uh, and then verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Sometimes when we read the Bible, uh, at least for myself, we don't fully soak in what we're reading. Um, I know a lot of times, for me, it's because I've read it or heard it so many times that I think I, I already understand it. Um, but sometimes it's really good to, to get to just break it down, pinpoint the why. Why do I agree with this? Why is it important to understand? Why did Paul need to state it in the first place? And so to answer this question, we have to address the problem. Why are the Jews so hung up on following the Mosaic laws? Well, for starters, the law came from God, right? That makes them pretty important, especially to the Jews who have had those laws as a part of their culture and religion for centuries. So on the surface, you might think, well, that's not so bad. They're just trying to keep the law, right? But the gospel actually has quite a bit to say about the kind of Jews who obsess over keeping the law. They were called Pharisees. They were about as close as a human could actually get to following the whole law to the letter. And they were very strict in their observance of customs. But yet they constantly tried to disprove Jesus. Disprove his claim that he was the son of God, that, that he was divine. You can find stories about the Pharisees all over the Gospels, including what I'll talk about just for a second here in Matthew chapter 23, um, verses 13 through 39. I won't read the whole thing, but here's just some of the things that Jesus says to the Pharisees in verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Verse 28, in the same way on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Verse 33, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? This whole passage is often called the seven woes, and it's a list of accusations against the Pharisees by Jesus himself. Remember, these guys are probably the closest law followers that you were bound to find in the Jewish culture. Uh, and, and Jesus, who is God in the flesh, he asks them, how will you escape being condemned to hell? See, the problem is that the law was never meant to be the thing that saved people. How do I know this? Because the entire book of Genesis and half the book of Exodus take place before God even speaks the law to Moses. If the law brought people into eternal life and reunion with God, then how could there be any hope for the people living before the law had been spoken? Not only that, but the promise of a Savior didn't come through the law. It came from the curse in the Garden of Eden centuries before Moses was born. Genesis 3.15, and this is God cursing the serpent in the Garden of Eden after he tempted Adam and Eve to sin. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So here we have a promise of an offspring of humanity who's going to come and he's going to be born and he's going to crush the head of the enemy. And this is the promise, of course, of Jesus coming to earth, defeating the devil. So if salvation comes through keeping the law then what is the need for a person to come to earth and defeat the enemy? If you could just attain your salvation through following the law. So later on, uh, we meet a guy named Abram, still in Genesis, before the law. 
And he was, he's, he's the first patriarch of the Jews, if you, if you didn't already know that. His grandson was Israel, who out of him came the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, so in Genesis 12, God says in verse 3, speaking to Abram, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So if salvation comes only through the Jewish law, then it stands to reason that only the Jews could be saved. Yet God promises that all nations will be blessed through Abram's family. And then if we skip to chapter 15, verse 5, God again talks to Abraham and he says he'll have uh, offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky. And then in verse 6, he says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram did not have the law in writing and he certainly did not follow it to the letter. If you read about the guy's life, he has so many problems. Yet because of his faith in God, he was declared righteous. Now, righteous is a word that, that we don't hear too much in today's vocabulary unless you're like, you know, a surfer, righteous dude, you know, whatever. <laughs> anyway, to be righteous is to be, as you might be able to infer, right. In the context of spirituality, it is to be in a right relationship with God. So to be righteous is to be justified. It's to be forgiven of sin and to be given a place in the family of God. Abram's righteousness came through faith in God. And that's the point of Christianity and what Paul is trying to restate to the Galatians and what preachers are continuing to restate 2,000 years later. So the answer to the question, why are the Jews hung up on the law? It's because their religious leaders and those who are considered to be experts in the law, the most scholarly of the Jewish religion, they'd hammered it into their brains before, during, and after Jesus was on earth that the law needed to be followed to the letter. Not that you needed to be loving or kind or really have any sort of heartfelt investment in your religion, simply that you follow it. Naturally, some no doubt, well-meaning Jews who believed in God thought, this Jesus guy is great. We definitely believe in his crucifixion and his resurrection, that he redeemed humanity, but it's just a belief that we now get to tack on to the laws that we're, we still need to follow, and anyone who converts to Christianity who wasn't a Jew also needs to follow. This is why it's so important to heed Paul's words from Galatians chapter 2. In fact, now with this explanation fresh in our minds um, as to why the Jews were in the wrong here, uh, let's go back to the text, but start a little bit further back. We're going to start in chapter 2, verse 16. And Paul says, uh, We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. See, the reason the Jews were given the law was twofold. One reason was to point out the failures of humanity and their inability to attain righteousness on their own. 
If we move into chapter 3 of Galatians, Paul explains the same thing that I already said about Abraham receiving the promise of God centuries before the law was given. Um, And then he asks the question, why give the law at all? Well, Galatians 3.22 says, But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law was this clearly laid out uh, list of reasons why humanity needed the promised Christ because it's impossible to never sin. So this, this, but the second reason that the Jews received the law was to hold them in line as much as possible. If we keep reading into verses 23 and, uh, through 25 of chapter 3 here, Paul says, Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So all of this is to say salvation comes through faith in Christ alone. No amount of doing good or not doing bad gets you a single step closer to the kingdom of God. In Paul's letter to the Ephesian churches, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, he puts it this way. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Before I move on to the second point, I want to make sure everyone has a clear understanding of the Christian faith. Either because you've never been taught it before, or maybe your experience with Christianity was what I've just been describing and how it's a matter of doing enough good or not doing bad, etc. Perhaps you're already truly a Christian, but there's no harm in being reminded of the reasoning behind our faith in Christ. Because you never know when you'll need to explain it to a curious co-worker or acquaintance. As the law of God judges, humans are imperfect and sinful. We are unrighteous and therefore not in right relationship with God. The consequence of being out of relationship with God is death. And not just physically, but eternal death of the soul. But because God is love, he made sure to have a plan of redemption for humanity. A way to make sure every person has the option to come back into perfect justification before God. Jesus came to earth in a human body. But he lived a life worthy of the law of God. Jesus says that the whole law can be summed up in two commands. Love God and love your neighbor. He never broke a command and so was the only human who could be blameless in comparison to the law. So he voluntarily took the penalty of humanity's sins by dying a brutal death. After three days in the grave, he came back to life as a final victory over the sins that used to call for our death sentence. Romans 10.9 says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This verse offers a perfect transition from my first point to my second. The first point was that salvation comes through faith alone. That is an echo of the statement in Romans that says, Believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Now we'll move on to the second half of uh, Galatians, and my second point, which builds off of the other part of that statement in Romans, Declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. For those taking notes, the second point is salvation brings transformation. This is the point that I think, if not properly understood, pushes people into those false gospels. Paul had to address the Galatians' issue of trying to tack on extra regulations in order to be truly saved. That is a false gospel. 
On the other hand, some people take it to the other extreme and say that we should no longer even acknowledge the Old Testament law. That salvation comes through grace and that essentially there's no need to address the sin in our lives. Both of these false gospels are prevalent in the world today. And I'm not just talking about some obscure cult followings, like massive amounts of people who follow one of these false gospels. And interestingly, both false gospels can be rooted in the same thing, which is pride. Last week, if you were here, Pastor Sal finished up his series uh, called When Things Go Wrong in a message that he titled The Problem with Pride. Pride is to withhold from God your whole life. Pride in one manifestation says, I know I'm a good Christian because I do these good things. See how I don't cheat on my taxes. See how I don't have sex outside of marriage. See how I serve on the worship team or in children's ministry at church. See how I give 10% of my gross income to church. See how I'm straight, I'm sober, I pray before every meal, I volunteer at the soup kitchen, I read my Bible every day, I attend every church function, I sponsor a child in Africa. I, 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 I am a good Christian. But remember, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. But Brent, you might say, it's not being prideful. I'm just saying, how can that person truly be saved if they're gay, if they support abortion, they live together, they aren't married, they're addicted to drugs, alcohol, porn, overeating, they never come to church, they don't tithe, they don't volunteer, they swear. They, 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 they are not doing what a Christian should be. Mm -mm. He says, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Galatians 5.1 says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Slavery to religion is toxic to the church around you and to yourself. Paul is so aggressively against this sin, born of pride, that he says this in Galatians 5.2, Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. In other words, if you allow yourself to believe that following the law affirms your salvation, Christ is not a part of your faith. Verse 3, again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Then we skip to verse 10. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Verse 12, as for those agitators, which are the people that are preaching circumcision as a means to becoming fully Christian, Paul says this, this is, this is an excellent line. I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Right? Stop telling people they have to do something in order to attain or maintain their salvation. I wish I could channel some more of Paul's intensity here. He literally just says to false preachers, I, I wish you would just cut the whole thing off. You're so useless. 
You're, you're causing so much trouble. Don't think I forgot about the other false gospel either. Like I said, there are plenty of people who believe that Christ's triumph over sin and death means we no longer need to acknowledge sin. Pride in this manifestation says, I am saved by grace. I can do whatever I want. I can fall back knowing that nothing I do or don't do has any say in where my soul ends up when I die. Why is this a false gospel? Did I not just go through four pages of notes here, scripture references and explanations detailing that living a certain way does nothing to impact your salvation? And now I'm saying that this very concept is a false gospel? Okay, no, it's not, it's not the exact same thing. It's, it's not the exact same thing I've been talking about, and you probably caught the prideful tone I was trying to convey there that made that statement false. But what actually is the difference between saying that statement pridefully and thereby making it false and saying it humbly and making it true? Well, actually, we already addressed that question earlier when we read chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, the laws of the Old Testament, which were given by God, and they're right and they're true, they do not give humanity the ability to obey that law. But if Christ, who did fulfill the law on our behalf, now lives inside of us, you catching where I'm going with this? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. Galatians 5 13 through 14 says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. This is why I said that that verse from Romans uh, that we read earlier was a perfect transition to the second point, um, which was the part where he says, Declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord. You're stating and believing that he is the master or el jefe or the king. Whatever mental picture you need to be able to comprehend that he is now the sole owner of your life. This is why it's prideful and false to declare, I am saved by grace. I can do whatever my flesh desires and be confident in my salvation. Because it implies that you are still in complete control of your life and that basically anything goes. In reality, if you have declared that Jesus is the Lord of your life, that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, if the new creation has come, then your flesh does not get a say in the matter. You have a new spirit, the spirit of God inside of you saying, I desire to serve God, to love my neighbor, to love my enemy. The concept is the same, but for different reasons. Your salvation is secure because you aren't the one calling the shots anymore. You're following the Old Testament command to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself because that's what your spirit is prompting you to do out of love and obedience to Christ. Galatians 5.16 So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other 
so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of, uh, rage, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is why context is so vital when you're teaching from the Bible. In Reach Youth, we've, uh, we've been using a video series called The Bible Project. I recommend that you, uh, you use that if you ever want just like a 10-minute ten, ten broad overview of, of any book in the Bible. It, it's this extremely helpful tool to give you a context uh, for, for the stories that take place in those books. Uh, passages like this that I just read to you about the acts of the flesh, that can be taken out of context so easily. If you read that, um, that someone who does those acts will not inherit the kingdom of God, that is a quote from that verse, and, and you don't acknowledge the context of the rest of the letter, then what would be the most logical conclusion to follow? That those who don't live like that will inherit the kingdom of God. But lucky for us, we've been following this train of text since the beginning. So we know that Paul's not trying to say, live a good life or else. He's saying, if you aren't living according to the Spirit, then the Spirit does not have control of your life. Maybe even it's just a partial thing, like, uh, you know, Holy Spirit, you have unlimited access to all parts of my life, except this one little thing. Just, just fill in the blank, whatever it may be. We have to remind ourselves over and over again, it is by grace through faith that we are saved and filled with the Spirit and that by the new spirit inside of us, we are transformed. Because there's going to be this constant warring inside of us where our flesh is going to try and pull us either into the comfort of the flesh. I know I'm saved. It's okay to sin. Or the comfort of religion. I follow these rules. I know I'm saved. Immediately after this list of acts of the flesh, Paul continues in this famous passage, Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the spirit is love joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. If we live in the Spirit, we will keep in step with the Spirit, and these fruits are the proof of that in our lives. Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 15 through 21, says it this way. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It wasn't until I was typing up this sermon that I even fully caught Jesus' words here. At a first glance, I, I did what I often do in reading the Bible. I accept it without questioning the why. What does it mean? 
doesn't it strike you as kind of odd that Jesus himself says only the one who does the will of my Father? Did we not just establish that doing doesn't get us anywhere in the quest for eternal life? If Jesus said it, though, it must be true. So I guess we have to do in order to enter heaven, right? Wrong again. The only one who can truly do the will of the Father is Jesus. And it's through faith in Jesus that we crucify, we put to death the old self. And then Christ in us has fulfilled the command to do the will of the Father. And so we, by faith, now have the same justification as Jesus Christ. What a weight off my shoulders, and I hope it is for you too. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on back up as I, uh, as I prepare to finish up here. Sometimes I find myself getting caught between seemingly conflicting interpretations of the Bible. On the one hand, I don't want to find myself caught in the false gospel of legalism, but I also want to help my fellow believers to understand that life in Christ implies rejection of the flesh. Fortunately, Paul's letter to the Galatians still has one more chapter. Chapter 6, starting in verse 1, says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Restore that person gently. Be humble in your approach. Recognize that you also are in a constant state of transformation. Come alongside them. Build them up through their trials. Growth is not comfortable. We need each other to lean on when we're especially weak. On the flip side, be humble when others do point out your guilt. If you deflect or make excuses, you're being like King Saul, who, as we heard last week, in his hubris, he believed that he need not take responsibility for his sins. God chose me to be king. I have God's favor. Allow me to make one sub-point with this. We need each other. Paul writes a letter to the church in Corinth, and in 1 Corinthians 12, he uses the analogy of the body to describe the church. We're all given the same spirit when we become believers. Therefore, we're all part of the same body. But also like the body, the church is made up of different parts. This analogy is often used to convey the idea, rightly so, that as different parts of the body, we each play a distinct role in the church. But we can also view it as, as the means by which we survive. If a part of the body receives like a dirty cut, then what happens? Well, another part of the body is designed to produce these antibodies to go to that cut to counteract the foreign substance and prevent infection. If that part that got cut is somehow totally independent of the body, it, the rest of the body can't get in to help. The cut festers and it dies because it has no connection to the other parts that can come to its aid. We're the same way. Why am I talking about this here? Clearly everyone in this room is already here with the other parts of the body, so I'm basically preaching to the choir, right? You already know it's important, that's why you're here. But I'm sure we have all encountered that one person who says, I don't like church. I don't like the organized church. And so I don't attend organized church services. Or maybe they say, I had a bad experience with a church. Now I don't go. Or maybe they say, isn't Christianity all about your personal relationship with Jesus? I don't need a church around me. 
we should be ready to answer these claims. Yes, the Spirit is living in us. He is our ultimate guide. But sometimes we might think we're listening to the Spirit, and, and, but we're listening to our flesh. And that's why we need other people who also have the Spirit to listen to what we are saying and correct us if we're misguided. You know, even King David, whom God describes as a man after God's own heart, did not repent of his sins until the prophet came and told him what he did wrong. If David had cut himself off from people who spoke the truth to him, he, he wouldn't have repented. So whether it's meeting in someone's house, or dare I say it, an established church with a denomination, just saying it makes me shudder, we can't deceive ourselves into believing that Christ would have us be cut off from meeting with other believers to worship, to pray, and to share with one another. So back to our text after that little tangent. Paul continues in Galatians 6-7, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. To live according to the, de according to the desires of the flesh, and yet to claim you are a Christian is an attempt to mock God. To emphasize it one last time, not because following the rules makes you a Christian, but because believing in Jesus and having him as your Lord is the direct causation of living according to God's perfect law. One final word from Paul in chapter 6, verse 15. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule. Everyone in this room has been given the chance either years ago or more recently or maybe even for the first time today, but everyone here has been given the chance to weigh the evidence presented through the gospel of Jesus. Each one of us was born into a world where we are separated from God due to our own sin. No one can be justified before God on their own. Jesus Christ came to earth and lived a perfect life justified before God. He took upon himself the punishment for our wrongdoings and that if we allow him to take full authority of our lives, he would make us like him, fully justified in the eyes of God with his spirit inside of us producing the kind of life that he chooses for us. We can have full confidence that as a good God who is described as perfect love the life he chooses for us is infinitely better than any life we could choose for ourselves living through the flesh. Let's pray again. God, I pray that you would allow the truths of your word to just seep into every corner of our hearts. And if we've been living in legalism and attempting by our own power to reach you, forgive us and set us back on the path of faith that your grace is sufficient to save us. If we've been living in the flesh and in ignorance of your Holy Spirit, forgive us. Come take control. We know that we're not giving up our freedom, but we're, we're embracing true freedom in a life that flows from you, that we reject the flesh, which only leads to bondage and ultimately to destruction. I pray that you would fill us all with your Spirit today. Help us to renew our commitment to you daily, hourly, every minute, God, so that our lives produce good fruit and life to those around us. I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. 
Amen. Thank you for listening to Praise Center Sermon of the Week. Don't forget, for more information, visit PraiseCenterOnline.com.